From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we pick up with the old phrase, taste and see that the Lord is good. But that Lord might be Jesus or Lord Krishna. We explore this with award-winning author Michelle Voss Roberts. Her new book, Tastes of the Divine, is an exploration of comparative theology. We'll find out what that means. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. She's the author of Dualities, A Theology of Difference, which was published in 2010. And she's just come out with a new book, Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion. In September, the American Academy of Religion selected Michelle Voss Roberts as one of its 2015 recipients for its Award of Excellence in the Study of Religion. Michelle Voss Roberts, welcome to Things Not Seen, and congratulations on this award. Thank you, and thank you for having me on the show, David. Well, I'm very interested to talk about this book because you are you're playing with some things that I think are going to be very interesting for our listeners. In particular, If I could, I'm going to try and state what I took to be one of the core theses of your book, Tastes of the Divine, and that's that we in the West have oftentimes thought of religion as an intellectual practice, but that we should really also think about religion as an embodied and emotional practice. Have I gotten that correctly from your book? That's right. I think that that's a good characterization of one of the driving energies behind the book, In fact, one of the things that drew me to this work was this legacy of the uh, Protestant Reformation, which uh, in its origins was very suspicious of Catholicism as being sensuous and emotional and anti-intellectual. And um, and so I grew up in the Reformed tradition of Christianity, which tends, yes, to be very cerebral and suspicious of the body. I think there was even an early Reformer, probably Zwingli, who said that there was nothing more beautiful to him in a church than a whitewashed wall. Uh, So the Reformers were really worried about material things becoming idols. And being raised in that tradition, I became sensitive to that dynamic. And I think in their zeal, some of the Reformed churches overcompensated. So much of their emphasis came to lie on the hearing of the Word that the other senses and the rest of the body was forgotten. And people in the tradition in which I was raised described themselves as the frozen chosen because they were so uncomfortable moving their bodies in worship. And the sermons were often all about thinking and about having the right doctrine. So it was really interesting to me when in the 1980s praise choruses and bands started appearing and a new kind of affectivity started showing up in worship. And it was in that space of incongruity that I started to realize that the anti-body, anti-emotion parts of the tradition didn't fit with this spirituality that I was 
starting to experience and also become attracted to. And so now I found myself in the company of a lot of other theologians who are rediscovering the affective and embodied dimensions of spirituality as a way of helping Christianity to restore wholeness to our communities and to our worship and actually to our views of ourselves. So um, my encounter with Hindu traditions was one of the ways, and perhaps different from some of the folks who do this strictly through engaging in uh, Christian sources, engagement with Hinduism was a way that I was able to reimagine what the body and what the emotions could be in religion. Well, and so there's a, there's a lot there that I want to explore and unpack, but maybe maybe let's start first of all with this suspicion that you talk about in particularly Protestant Western Christianity about the body. Why? And, and you mentioned, I love the, that quotation from Zwingli, that the most beautiful thing is a whitewashed wall. It reminds me of when I traveled in Europe and I would see ancient Catholic cathedrals that had had all of the stained glass ripped out of them and replaced with plain glass. And there were places in Cologne, Germany, where they would sort of take away some of the white paint from the walls and you could see how colorful the walls used to be. What was the source of this of this fear, this suspicion of of the body and of sensuality uh, during the Protestant Reformation? I think what was emerging at that time was a very different sensibility about how God relates to the world. And so in a Catholic sensibility, reality is sacramental. And so the sacraments, are places where something real and something divine is mediated. The bread and the wine are actually the body and blood of Christ. It's a very tangible God. And beyond that, some of my favorite Catholic thinkers are those who take that sensibility more broadly into the world and think that we can see God in creation, in the order of creation, in its beauty, in the way that the mind works, uh, in our communities. So there's a, a palpable sense of being able to encounter God. And what the Reformers were worried about was that uh, sort of was a kind of superstition or a way in which material things were standing in for God, who they conceived as spirit. And in their mind, rather than divinity permeating the world, God was very transcendent and, as creator, very distinct from creation. And so by removing the visual and the sensory aspects, it directed worship through the mind, which is what they thought got closest to God, who is spirit. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University. We're discussing her new book, Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion. In September, the American Academy of Religion selected Michelle Voss-Roberts as one of its 2015 recipients for its Award of Excellence in the Study of Religion. Let me make sure that I've heard this correctly. So if if we look back at the history of the development of, of Protestant Christianity, there was a suspicion of Catholic practice because it drew you to the body 
and the thinkers of the time in the in the 16th and 17th centuries were concerned that this would be a distraction from the best way to access knowledge of the divine, which was contemplation and sort of um, abstract reasoning and thought. Have I heard that correctly so far? Yes, and one one thing that I would add, in some ways, those uh, the aspects of abstract thinking and doctrine are side effects of what I think was actually foremost in the reformers' minds, which was the centrality of Scripture. And so in bringing the Word to the center of worship and in delivering the Bible into the hands of everyone, there was really a lot of confidence that the Word could deliver truth and that a lot of the other uh, entrapments of worship and the material culture around Christianity were distracting Christians from, you know, if only they could just read in Scripture, they would they would have what they needed, and the rest of it is distraction, it's keeping power, and it's keeping Scripture actually tied up with in the hands of the few when it's meant for the many. And so there's a de- there was a democratizing impulse there as well. And, you know, sometimes the intentions don't always go with the effects. Uh, in terms of the democratization, one of the things that happened with the centrality of the word is that with it, the suspicion of the body and of the material realm it also went hand in hand with a, a suspicion of the feminine, and so if, if you recall in the reformations, the um, the reformers also did away with the monastic life, and many of the leadership positions that were available to women were eliminated, and um, those strands of women's spirituality, which uh, were so important during medieval Catholicism, um, sort of had to find other ways of emerging later on in the Protestant tradition. It occurs to me that when we talk about um, when we talk about this shift, uh, we're losing something, and we're losing uh, something that is very central, as you mentioned, to your book. In fact, it's there in the title, "Tastes of the Divine." So, I wonder if you could talk to our listeners about what what was important to you about recapturing the actual physical act of tasting in this process. Well, I didn't set out to recapture tasting, but I um, did discover something in my studies of Hindu traditions that captivated me, and that's this idea of rasa. Rasa is this word that has so many meanings in relation to the religions of India. Its core meaning is something like sap or juice or the essence of a thing, but from that comes this meaning of taste. So the essence of a thing is how it tastes, and then it develops a little bit more to have to do with aesthetic experience. And so when you view a work of art or see a play, you experience this sort of aesthetic relishing that's called rasa. And this has always been related to religious terminology. Uh, Very early on, one of the Upanishads, one of the sacred texts, describes Brahman or the divine in terms of rasa as something that can be savored or tasted experientially. But early, its earliest development is in Indian literary theory, which takes up the term rasa to describe the emotional effect of art on an audience. And so this term is really developed in 
a book called The Natya Shastra by Parata. And this is a text that actually belongs to the realm of drama. It outlines specific dramatic techniques that should evoke particular emotions in an audience. And in the text lays out eight basic emotional states that human beings share. And these are also called rasas. And they're love, humor, heroism, compassion, disgust, fury, terror, and wonder. So these are all called rasas. And later on, a, a ninth one is added. It's peace. And so Bharata explains how rasa arises through the combination of various factors that an actor can, can evoke. And so if you have the right setting, the right behaviors, facial expressions, narrative factors, an audience will experience each one of these emotions in kind of a purified or aesthetic manner. So I'll give you an example. In a romance, we get a sense of love, which is one of the rasas, through a romantic setting, like a nice restaurant with low lighting and soft music, or maybe a garden full of flowers and nice fragrances under a full moon. And then how characters behave also contributes to the feeling of love. So they might smile at each other, give each other loving glances, but if they were acting silly or did something disgusting, it would really ruin the mood. So that's kind of the science of rasa. And this kind of aesthetic emotion is different from ordinary emotion. So when we feel our own anger or sorrow, it's painful to us. But when we savor these emotions in a work of art, we don't have the same kind of attachment to them. And so that's why we can watch a tragedy or even a horror movie, and it can be a pleasurable or kind of cathartic experience. So rasa is this purified or aesthetic emotion, and so it means also this, blissful and transcendent culmination of the aesthetic experience. It's like a feeling of being transported outside oneself and part of something universal. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Voss-Roberts. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, listeners. I want to take a moment and tell you about our partner for producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's an old-timey organization. They got started in 1908 doing live events here in the Chicago downtown area. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio, and in the 1950s, they started out as one of the first religious television programs anywhere ever. And they're still doing radio and television. In addition to co-producing this program, the Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS that focus on issues like violence, immigration reform, health care, and more, highlighting the good work being done by faith communities as they try to make these situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs they've been producing for more than 70 years at their website, csec.org. That's csec. I'm David Dalt, and this is Things Not Seen. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. We're discussing her new book, Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion, In September, the American Academy of Religion selected Michelle Voss-Roberts as one of its 2015 recipients for their Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion. Before the break, we were discussing the concept of rasa, a term from Indian literary theory that maps somewhat onto our notions in the West of aesthetic taste. 
it can also be used to understand religious sensibilities. Professor Voss Roberts continues. And that's really where the religious part comes in, because India's aesthetic tradition is deeply religious. The dances in the Natya Shastra began in the temple and in dramas there, and then even when the drama moves outside the temple, the performing arts have a sacred quality because Rasa's blissful transcendence is rooted in a divine source, Brahman. And so Indian philosophers and theologians spend a lot of time talking about Rasa as an analogy between aesthetic experience and religious experience. What's very interesting to me in what you're describing here, two things sort of spring to mind. One is when you talk about the way that the the Indian and Hindu traditions in, in the Nasha Shastra are describing these emotional states like love and humor and heroism and, and compassion and disgust and peace as purified forms, the first thing that went through my mind was the Greek philosophical tradition that, that talks about the, the uses of rhetoric to help to sort of almost manipulates the emotions of people that are watching or experiencing dramatic performances. So rhetoric is one piece, is the, the manipulation of emotion. The other thing that came to me, though, is that in our own language, we're beginning to sort of gesture towards what you're talking about because when we say that someone can experience a work of art at a high and refined level, we say that they have excellent taste. And here's that word taste again that's coming in, not just in a way of putting something in your mouth and, and savoring it, but also putting putting art in your soul and savoring it in a particular way. Now, I want to make sure that when I make those comparisons, I'm hearing you correctly. Am I, am I onto something here or have I missed what you're saying? So you're definitely onto something with the taste, uh, the aesthetic taste having a resonance with what's going on in in India because the cultured. So because in the text, it's very clear that you have to be an educated or a cultured connoisseur of art to be able to taste rasa. All of these emotions, these rasas that are evoked in art, are common human emotions. And so you can you can watch a scary movie and be scared by it without knowing a lot about horror films. But you don't really savor the essence of what's happening unless you understand the techniques behind it. And so when I watch uh, an Indian Bharatanatyam dance, I've come to learn some things about what certain hand gestures mean or eyebrow movements, and I know that they're tied to particular emotions. And some of them are very culturally conditioned, and so I might not, in my experience, associate a particular hand gesture with love, but I've come to know, oh, that that's what this means. And um, when I first started watching this art form, I was not savoring rasa. I think I'm getting a little closer now that I understand more about the technique, but I'm far from immersed in it well enough to really be the kind of connoisseur that they're talking about in the text. And so the idea of having a high or elevated taste is also there in the Indian materials. What's fascinating about this to me is if I think about the the Eastern Orthodox iconographic traditions, the, the kind of gestures and eyebrow raise or the movement of a hand, you find that there also in the writing of icons because you have different images of Christ depending on where Christ's hands are positioned. You sort of know the role that Christ is playing in that particular iconographic moment, Christ as teacher, Christ as pontocrator, etc. So it, it seems to me like there are there are definitely religious overlaps here, but but that leads me to, to want to be careful when we talk about 
when we talk about emotions, when we talk about taste, when we talk about religious experience, are they portable across different cultures and different religious experiences? Or should we be careful to to make distinctions as we're moving between these two cultures and these two religious practices? There is a lot there. Um, so one thing that I'd like to say about the icons is that you're correct that particular gestures or eye movements are signifying particular things in that you might not understand that the first time you encounter an icon. And so one of the things that this points to is that religious practices are practices. And so there's an element of discipline and training and cultivating uh, an understanding of the particular art form that's necessary for somebody to experience it as religious, to really sort of get it on a cellular level or to, to taste the divine through it. And so to loop back to your question about rhetoric and manipulation, I think that that is a real concern. And we definitely see manipulation in political rhetoric. We definitely see it um, in one of the most famous examples is Nazi uses of film and music, right, which can be um, used to make people feel transcendent and together and a sense of unity and ignore a whole bunch of really horrible things. And that is one function that art can play. And, uh, and in the book, I discuss the importance of a, a critical faculty when being swept up in a work of art, also to think about issues of justice and, again, real bodies and so forth. Um, but the positive spin, actually, on this, or the positive way of framing this for religious practice is that all of our practices are rhetorical practices. And so when somebody plans a Christian worship service, they might be trying to cultivate love for Jesus. And they're going to set the mood with the right kinds of songs that the community has learned to sing and learned to associate with a certain kind of affectivity towards God. Um, there might be particular hand gestures like, you know, closed eyes or raised hands. And I suppose if somebody's been in that kind of religious sensibility for a long time, they're not doing it intentionally. Like, we have to put these ingredients together so that people really have an experience of God in this worship service. But in effect, because these are practices that have been honed and you can do them more or less well, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, um, when we plan worship, we are crafting a religious sensibility, whether we know it or not. And Rasa gives us language to talk about what those ingredients might be. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. We're discussing her new book, Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion. In September, the American Academy of Religion selected Michelle Voss-Roberts as one of its 2015 recipients for their Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Well, a moment ago, you were discussing this text that you've you've found very helpful, the Nasha Shastra, 
And you mentioned that within it there are eight and then later nine sort of core pure emotions. Love and humor, disgust, peace, heroism, compassion are all part of that that array of, of purified emotions. In your own book, you select sort of three emotional states to look at, and you mention them early in the book as a soul at peace, a heart in love, and the fury that comes at injustice. And I'm wondering, first of all, did you select these three emotions because you found them to be uh, particularly telling and central, or were you were you in some way um, in conversation with this selection of, of eight or nine emotions in the Nasha Shastra? These three emotions, peace, love, and fury, they rise to the top for me because they've been central to the encounter between Hinduism and other traditions. And so they've also been central to my encounter with Hindu traditions. Peace is a really good place to start because a lot of theorists, Indian theorists, see this as the rasa par excellence. Really any aesthetic experience culminates in something like the experience that you have in meditation. And so much of the appeal of the religions of India for people from other traditions, like Christianity, lies in its meditation techniques. Yoga is so popular right now, and part of the reason is that it fills a real spiritual need, that people are looking to find a sense of peace and centering amid a chaotic world. Yoga employs the body to a much greater degree than, say, mainline Protestant worship does. And it also employs silence and breath. And those things resemble some of the contemplative Christian traditions that had been forgotten for a long time and now are finding new life in in Christian churches. And so um, a lot of the revival of Christian practices like centering prayer, the use of icons, I think has been inspired, at least in part, by learning from Hindu and Buddhist meditation. So when we think of these three primary emotions that you pull out in the book, uh, peace, love, and fury, one question that came to me is, should we be thinking of these as sort of like primary colors, the, the, sort, of three, the sort of three components that you can mix and match to get all other kind of emotional colorations or are things left out around the edges that we still need to account for, even as we as we look closely at peace, love, and fury? Well, I do discuss the three peace, love, and fury um, mainly in the book. And the, the love piece comes as a development of rasa theory in Indian tradition. These devotional traditions start to develop in India in the medieval period around the time that Bernard of Clairvaux and other Christian theologians are starting to unpack the Song of Songs as a love story between God and the soul. And so um, that is a place that Rasa theory definitely developed. Uh, those theologians in India use Rasa language all the time, so that's a clear connection, and love is a clearly central religious sensibility in Christianity. Fury, I came to see fury as a primary religious emotion, in part because of my Christian friends in India. And many of them are Dalits, which means that they come from the classes of Indian society that used to be deemed untouchable. And so there's this strong theme of protest in Dalit Christianity, protesting both the history and the continuing reality of oppression by other castes, including in the Christian church. And so with, with my experiences with my friends in India, I started to see these resonances with 
African-American liberation theology in the United States, and it really helped me understand why anger has a place in religion. So what about the other rasas? Rasa theory names nine primary emotions, and I discuss all of them in the book to some extent. Rasa theory also has 33 supplementary emotions that can alter each of the nine primary ones in subtle ways. So, for example, love can be shaded with anger if you're having a lover's quarrel or with bashfulness if it's the beginning of a relationship and things like that. So there's there's a lot of ways of mixing the paints. I like your metaphor there in order to produce the full spectrum of human emotion. Um, there are also some theorists con- uh, in the contemporary period that think that there are some things missing from traditional Rasa theory. For example, um, existential angst could be maybe added to that slate, and we don't really see anything like that in the classical literature on Rasa. There there was something that you said in the midst of your answer that I want to circle back to, and it was in your your mention of the the Dalits, the the Christians in India who had come from the class that used to be called untouchables. And in the course of your answer, you said that that in in dealing with friends who were Dalits, you had resonances with African-American liberation theologies here in the United States. And you use that that as a way of saying that we oftentimes don't talk about righteous righteous anger and fury as a as an important religious emotion and important religious experience. And I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that connection, because particularly in the past you know twelve to eighteen months, we have seen uh, we've seen African American experience in the United States really sort of be pushed to a crisis moment, and I mean that both in a historical and a, and a Bardian sense. Where, where it's almost as if the community is is speaking now with prophetic voice to the power structures of our country, and I wonder if you if you would just be willing to expand a little bit on the, some of the connections that you see there. Sure, you know it. I I started my comparative work by uh, by being very attracted to the contemplative traditions and to yoga, and when I studied Sanskrit, it was the place to go to understand some of this deep philosophy, which um, can really bring peace to the soul. And so I hadn't expected to go to Fury in this book until I was invited to see some street dramas. So another version or variation on the Russia, uh, on the Russia theme, and they were protest dramas. And one, one great way of disseminating an idea in India in the villages is to show up in the middle of the street and make a spectacle. And so if you, if you show up in the street and do a protest drama, you're doing uh, education, you're raising consciousness uh, for folks who aren't looking at the Internet, right, or might not have a TV. And so I, I see some of the public performances and the protests in that light today in the United States that uh, where we do have a lot of media to disseminate. And of course, the the protests today don't have control over how they're depicted. And so the rhetoric gets uh, picked up in different ways. And so I've noticed that mainstream media has emphasized violence and tend to downplay numbers, right, of, of who shows up at protests or, you know, there's a lot of clergy who show up at these protests, but what we see on the media is 
if some violent outbreak happens, that gets all the attention. And so the messaging is different from sort of a community by community, street by street approach. Um, but one thing that I see in the contemporary manipulation of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and other types of protests today is um, a way of saying we don't want anger because anger is violent, anger makes people uncomfortable, anger is counterproductive. And I actually heard some of the very same things when I was in India, thinking about going in this direction. The theologians that have been very helpful for me thinking about peace and also thinking about embodiment um, have not always been so happy that I did take the turn towards anger and towards Dalit protests in the book. Um, and so um, I've, I've heard this from both Catholic Indian Christians and mainline folks in India, that this is a movement that makes them very uncomfortable, and they what they see is a lot of energy, a lot of anger that will probably burn itself out. Um, they suspect that there's no real spirituality underlying it. They, they would much rather see peace and love, and what's come to the forefront is is fury. And so the question of what to do in the face of a work of art, so to speak, like that is um, do you turn off your television? Do you uh, censure it? Or do you allow that emotion of anger at injustice to start to seep into your soul and feel it too? And of course, anger can be a manipulative emotion to, to you know, fire up anger against people in, an, in another community, does, can incite violence and so forth. But I think that it's something that needs to be interrogated. What here is a movement of the spirit, so to speak, or a taste of the divine? Uh, and where are people being crassly political? And I think that's something uh, that is never... 100% one or the other, but that's part of the theological work of interrogating emotion. I'm David Dalt, and this is Things Not Seen. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Theology at the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. We're discussing her recent book, Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion. You can find out more about Professor Voss Roberts and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Each week we hear from listeners like you who write in to tell us that they love the show, and a lot of you ask us what you can do to help support us. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. The number one thing you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. That word of mouth is so incredibly important. And if you listen to us through iTunes, there's a second thing you can do. They give you the means to give reviews to the show, and it would be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review for us. I hear five stars are very popular. You can also give us money. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that we work with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So many good things come from that partnership, but one of the best by far is that your donations are tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at csec.org, the website for the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Thank you for your support, and thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. 
Our guest today is Michelle Voss Roberts. We're discussing her recent book, Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion. So in what you just said a moment ago about the reactions of various Christian communities within India to the Dalit Christian movements for liberation and the sort of animation of fury, you began to paint a picture of Catholic and mainline Christians in India sort of being very uncomfortable with the the Dalit Christian expressions. And that makes me realize that when we talk about Christianity, we're not talking about one monolithic structure. We're talking about we're talking about a global phenomenon that has a lot of aspects that don't always agree with one another. And so that also makes me think that when we talk about Hinduism or the Hindu tradition, we're probably also talking about a global phenomenon that has a lot of facets that don't always agree with one another. So in what sense is it proper when we're doing any sort of comparative examination of different religious traditions to talk about Christianity with a capital C or Hinduism with a capital H? Would it be more proper to talk about Christianities? Would it be more proper uh, to talk about Hinduisms in this conversation? That's right. I think so. Um, Christianity has never been one thing. In fact, the story of Christianity is a long story of encounters with religious difference, even. And so um, we can we can see that Christianity in the early church is very different from Christianity in medieval Europe, is very different from Christianity in contemporary India. Um, and so we have a real plurality there. And the same thing with Hinduism. This word Hinduism is a, is a modern creation for the West, actually. When, during the colonial period, missionaries started going to India, they were looking for something that looked like religion, right? Like a, you know, a belief in God, a central text. And when they started to identify things that looked religious, they said, okay, this is, this is the religion and we're going to call it Hinduism. But in reality, Different communities have different religious practices in India. Uh, if you're in the north, things look different from when you're in the south. They, just like Christianity, have a very long history of development from you know, Vedic sacrifice, which is very different from meditation, which is very different from devotional worship. Um, and so uh, I think we're always looking at multiple Hinduisms, multiple Christianities. And that's one of the reasons that... Uh, I enjoy the method that I use, and I'm so happy that it's emerged in the academy recently, and that's called comparative theology. And this is different from a lot of perhaps uh, comparative religions courses that people have taken in school where they get the snapshot view of Islam and Hinduism and Judaism, and then um, if you're in a divinity school like I am, you take most of the rest of your courses, learning about all the different facets of Christianity. Well, all traditions are really that diverse. And so compar- what comparative theology does is go very particular. And so what you see in the book is that I frame a comparison between two thinkers, right? I look at their texts, and I, I don't try to say that they're representing all Hindus. I look at what's interesting about what they're saying and put them side by side with another very particular person who is saying something interesting. And so I think there are so many different kinds of comparisons that can be framed, but I get really uncomfortable when we try to do it at the meta level of Christianity, capital C, and Hinduism, capital H. 
that then would lead some of my evangelical listeners probably to want to push back against that because I think that there is, at least in American Christianity, a sense that you can find the pure form of it. We've got it. Just read your Bible, uh, preferably the King James. And so some of our evangelical listeners might be very off-put by your suggestion that they could learn anything of value by considering Indian religious practices. In fact, some might feel threatened that they might lose something in the exchange of even opening themselves up to that kind of that kind of comparative process. Now, let's let's play devil's advocate for a moment. Are those fears justified? Do they lose something in the process of comparative theology? Well, I think you have to ask then what are we comparing and what's the outcome of the comparison? Uh the the question is really to to meta level, to abstract. So with respect to what I've done in this book, I've chosen to learn from rasa, a category that applies to everyone since humans are embodied and generally respond to similar stimuli in similar ways. The Indian drama manuals were very astute observers of human behavior, and there's nothing to prevent Christians from trying on rasa as a category to see where we can learn from the conversation. It doesn't threaten any of our doctrine of God. It doesn't threaten who we think Christ is. Uh, it actually kind of fills a gap in theological anthropology, the doctrine of what a human being is, because we haven't really thought about emotion in quite this way, and these are ways of framing it that could be really useful. But um, I think you asked a deeper question, too, and that's about the fear of losing one's faith by becoming open to learning from religious neighbors. And I think this is a good example of one way that emotion can be counterproductive in religious experience, at least if it goes un- unexamined. Fear of the other is something that closes us off from grace. If we're so afraid that we're going to lose what's essential to us, we're not going to be able to appreciate the beauty of our human diversity, which God created. And I I sometimes worry that religious leaders cultivate this kind of fear intentionally. This is one way of shoring up a sense of the truth and uniqueness of one's own tradition by making strong distinctions between us and them, the saved and the damned. And the fear is then that if you relate to somebody who's in that other category, you'll be damned too. But what I see in Jesus is that he consorted with a lot of people outside his religious group and people on the margins of the society And I think that what we see in Jesus is is the need to examine those fears of otherness and to widen the embrace. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. We're discussing her new book, Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion. In September, the American Academy of Religion selected Michelle Voss-Roberts as one of its 2015 recipients for their Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. And one of the arguments that you make in the book is that when we look at the history of Christianity, we look at this movement that has come into new cultures and into new areas and has adopted practices and has incorporated cultural and ideas and philosophies from from a wide variety of cultures around the world. And so when we talk about an American style of Christianity, we're talking about one particular moment in a very long history of incorporating difference within itself. Did I get that correctly out of the book? 
Absolutely. The, the story of Christianity is a story of encounters with religious difference. And in some cases, other religious traditions provide a negative foil. So like early on with Gnosticism, there were categories and practices that were very anti-body that Christians rejected because they wanted to affirm the reality of the Incarnation. But there are lots of other cases where Christians have adopted and modified religious beliefs and practices that they've found around them. So early Christianity was born in Judaism, and Neoplatonism had a very formative influence on Christian orthodoxy in the early centuries. Titles of Christ, many of them are derived from things like mystery religions or the Roman emperor cult. Pagan practices like Christmas trees, well, there are Christmas trees for us now, that, that is something that morphed into a central Christian festival. And then if we look in the U.S., um, African religions definitely shaped American slave religion, and liberation theologies took a lot from secular ideas of democracy and human rights. And so I suppose you could call this syncretism, but it's just sort of the way that it happens. Christ was incarnate in a very particular place and time, and Christianity takes shape in very particular places and times all over the world. And so it's perfectly natural, it makes perfect sense that religious diversity would continue to impact Christianity today. We're forging our religious identities out of broader cultural encounters all the time with our neighbors, our colleagues, media representations, current events. It's nothing new, and I think it would actually be an artificial intervention if we try to seize just one iteration of Christianity and say that that's the pure or essential version. What positive effects do we gain by doing this kind of comparative theological work for the lived experience of people in 21st century America or 21st century India? And the bigger question behind that is, what is the politics of comparative theology? Well, the positive effect of comparative theology is pretty simple that by learning about your neighbor's religion, you then turn back and look at your own tradition with new lenses, with new categories, with new questions. And that can be a really fruitful place of exchange. It doesn't mean crossing over into the other tradition and staying there, although certainly People are welcome to do that, but it's like what happens when we travel. We go someplace, we have an experience of something new, and we come back changed because we see our ordinary existence as maybe not so ordinary anymore. It looks different to us. And that can be a very broadening and, um, and fruitful thing to do. So specifically with this comparison that I framed in Taste of the Divine, it is, as I said, a larger part of a larger movement of asking again, why is it important that we are bodies? And what significance does it have that we are different from one another, whether through gender or race or culture or ability? So much of Christian theology has one kind of norm, and usually it's the norm of the people writing theology, um, men who are in some position of power, if only ecclesiastical or some sort of university position, um, reflecting for everybody else. And so by attending to embodied experience, we immediately have to deal with 
the fact that we are embodied in the world in very different ways. And rather than saying that's irrelevant to theology, because theology is about abstract propositional truth that it doesn't matter where you are, we look to instead the goodness of creation, the importance of the incarnation, um, the reason that we have sacramental practices where material reality mediates something to us, and we'll differ as to what that is depending on our denomination, but Christianity is a religion of the body, and if we can learn how to think with the body again, that's all to the better. And if we can learn how to do that through some ideas from ancient India, I think also all to the better, uh, because we really do need some resources. We're so stuck so often in these binaries of reason versus emotion, right, or mind versus body. And the second thing, the, the rational or the emotional, and then by association often the feminine, is that which gets in the way of truth. It, it muddies the waters, it, it, it fogs things up, and what we need is clear minds. But in fact, we encounter the world all the time through our bodies, and we know through our senses. And so um, it is really, really hard for us to get our minds around that, and so comparative theology here, I think we've touched on something that might be able to help us to get there. Now, when I look at contemporary Western culture, I see that we are very wedded to these binaries. We really love our binaries. And so I guess as a way of, of bringing all this uh, into a landing, my my final question would be, as you're doing this work, would you characterize your... your um, your prognosis for its success, are you frustrated by what you see as you try and do this this comparative theological work, or do you feel hopeful? I feel hopeful. What I've discovered is that there are more sites for religion and spirituality than pews on Sunday. And there are communities, often of people who are searching for embodied ways to relate to God, or have found them already and are now asking questions about how this relates to their Christian belief. Um, this is often happening outside of the pews at, at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Um, and so I've found um, people asking fascinating questions out of uh, practices that they've discovered I have a I have a neighbor who started buying books of mandalas at Barnes and Noble, and this has become kind of a spiritual practice for her. And indeed, it is a spiritual practice to create and to to sort of go deep into a work of art. And communities form around these things. Um, they don't look like you know planting a church sign in the front yard, but there are places where people are sustaining one another through. Uh, alternative practices. And I'm even seeing in in some of the mainline churches a recognition of this need. And so spirituality groups will form. Um, there's no shortage of retreats that you can take to learn some of these practices. This is happening kind of around the edges. And I think, I think that it's also going hand in hand with this phenomenon that is much bemoaned by many of my colleagues in theological education um, of the rise of the nuns. 
These are the people who don't affiliate anymore with a particular religious tradition, um, but they might be describing themselves as, here's another term, um, spiritual but not religious. And a lot of where that spirituality is happening, I believe, is through sort of feeling our way back towards how is it that nature and contemplative practices and other um, other ways of being in community with one another are helping us to taste the divine. And sometimes that happens in a way that loops back around to Christian theology, which I think is full of possibilities for incorporating that. And sometimes it doesn't, but I'm not so worried about that because I, I, I do have great hope and I do see that the the tides are changing and that people are connecting with one another around these kinds of things that weren't even as available oh, 20, 30 years ago. Well, Michelle Voss-Roberts, congratulations again on your award from the American Academy of Religion, and I've really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too, David. Our guest today is Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Theology at the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Adam Yaffe engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.